Well, it's good to be with you. If, if you're new, welcome. I'm Rashad. I'm one of the pastors here. I, I do this a lot, uh, a lot, a lot. So um, this is not your thing. I, sorry. I, this is what I'll be doing most of the time. I'm just joking. Um, so we're in the book of Acts. As you know, we're like, we're ending it. We're getting into the 20s, chapter 20s. We're like, we're almost there. And um, so sometimes you get some of your story, you're like, what's going on here? Like, how are you going to preach on that? And I spent most of my week saying, okay, God, how am I going to preach on this? <laughs> but I think, I think there's something good to be mined and found in this passage. And if you, if you were here last week, you saw that um, Paul met some of the disciples of John the Baptist. They were unaware of Jesus and the holy access to the Holy Spirit. They get baptized in the Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit um, and Paul's preaching and teaching, um, and like the philosopher's quarters, and um, people start to turn in their sorcery and their books, and they begin to burn them as they turn their lives fully over to pursue Jesus. And it says that message of Jesus was spreading powerfully. And this is where we find ourselves in the story today. Paul is with these young disciples in this growing early church in Ephesus, and the city is literally changing right before their eyes. In a real sense, Paul is doing what he was called to do when he was knocked off um, in the, on the Damascus Road, and Jesus told him that he will be a witness for him to the Gentile world. And here's what we know. When God has called you to do something, it will be welcomed by some and resisted by many. And that's been Paul's experience since being becoming a follower of Jesus, since following the lead of the Spirit. And so here's what we know about this passage in this time in Paul's life, that he knows that his season in Ephesus is coming to an end. It's been nearly three years, and his time in this region, what we call Asian, Asia Minor, is coming to an end, and he says... In, um, in verses 21 and 22, that he's shifting his focus towards Rome. Rome is the center of the empire, and ultimately it's the place that Paul's going to be arrested and put into custody. And similarly, as we talk about the season of Lent, there was a time in Jesus' ministry where he sets his eyes on Jerusalem, where he's fixed on, on Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. He's journeying to Jerusalem in preparation to give his life. So when we talk about Lent, I don't know for you, it wasn't my church tradition. It's something that I've learned and have grown fond of these last 10 years. But it's ultimately about walking with Jesus to Jerusalem, taking into account our own mortality, um, taking into account our own limits as human beings, and our ultimate surrender to God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And um, so I'll say this, submitting our lives to God is disruptive. When we submit our lives to God, not only is it disruptive to us, it can be disruptive to the world around us. I tell you this often. I got radically saved when I was 21 years old. And if you don't know this about me, I was the life of the party, okay? <laughs> I timed out when I walked in because it's something called a grand entrance. You got to make a grand entrance. Hey, guys, now the party has begun, right? Um, and so... <laughs> There was, there was a lot of extracurriculars that I was involved in in my, we call, you know, around Christian circles, BC, my pre-Jesus days. Um, a lot of things that, that I, when I became a follower of Jesus, I ceased to engage in. 
And so where I directed my energy, my time, my emotions, and my money had drastically changed once I became a follower of Jesus. My friends, my roommates, my coworkers, all of a sudden didn't really know how to relate to me. After I became a follower of Jesus, it affected the way things and people had power and a hold over me. See, when you see these scores of people in Ephesus turning to Jesus, they are in effect turning away from a previous life. They are turning away from things that they may have for their whole lives have given their allegiance to. And now they're radically turning the other way. Verse 23 says, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Becoming a follower of Jesus is following what they say, the way. Following Jesus is just that, where we, we change direction on the course of our lives and begin to follow him. This wasn't theoretical. This wasn't metaphorical. With their whole lives, they begin to follow the way of Jesus. Now understand, every society and culture has a way. They have a way in which it operates. Our world is discipling us since the day that we enter this earth and saying, here's what's important. Here's, what's, um, here's the way to prosper. Here's what life's all about. I have some guys that I hang out in this lounge, and they always, whenever like, we sit down, they go, this is what life's all about, Rashad. This is what it's all about. Right? Everyone, everyone philosophizes. Everyone is telling you what is the way to get life, what life's all about, and the way. Right? In America, we have something called the American way. Right? We all have been in some form discipled in the American way just by living here. But they're saying the way of Jesus is causing a disturbance. The way of Jesus is causing a disturbance in the culture and in the life in the world around them. See, many, we, we have this thing in our culture where we say we're very, very tolerant of people. And, and you're okay with people doing things their own way as long as it doesn't rub against yours. Come on if you have a roommate. Come on if you live with somebody. Come on if you go home for the holidays, right? <laughs> you're okay with someone's lifestyle until it starts rubbing up against yours. When it's rubbing up against yours, then that's, when, then that's when their way has to submit to your way. See, Ephesus, Paul was preaching in these lecture halls during the off hours while everyone was at lunch and siesta. So he wasn't, well, it was fine. He wasn't really bothering anyone for him to be preaching, for him to have a couple little debates here and there. But now God is changing people's lives. Not the idea of God, like God is literally changing the way people are wired and the way they're going about their life. God is literally turning over the economics and the idols of the culture and it's becoming a threat. The way is becoming a disturbance to their way of life. The implications of following Jesus will almost every time undermine the cultural idols and relics of society. See, Paul didn't come in and start attacking their beliefs. He just presented a God through the person of Jesus who overcame the grave, who says he holds all true power and is worthy of true worship. Jesus said the true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. And because, and Paul says, because God is a God who doesn't share his glory, God is a God who doesn't want to, who wants a monogamous relationship with his creation, that means everything else that has a place on the throne of your heart has to bow down to this King of Kings, to this Lord of Lords. 
All right, now those of you who've been going to the Black Church Brunch, this is time for some feedback here now. Come on, I've been discipling you in the way of feedback. All right. <laughs> Somebody, all right. <laughs> See, worship, it doesn't matter what chapter or what verse we talk about in the Bible, it all comes down to worship. It's always going to come back to worship. Worship is about the priority of our hearts. And the priority of these people's hearts has begun to change. You look at the early church, they begin to lay down their lives for one another, people that are different than themselves. And they begin to share possessions because guess what? Possessions is no longer the goal. Possessions is no longer the way. And their way now says, what's mine is yours. I'm my brother's keeper. I'm my sister's keeper. We're in this together because we want to see the kingdom of God on earth. And so those things are no longer the goal. The goal now is like to get rid of anything that sits on the thrones of our hearts. And they begin to fight for an equitable, just society that began within the church. And as they begin to live these kingdom of God values out in community, it begins to disturb the world they find themselves in. The gospel is a threat to economic prosperity, national pride, and religious fervor of those in Ephesus and the known world. The gospel is a threat to the ways of the world. Verse 23. A silversmith about that time, oh my goodness, okay. Demetrius, who had made, I had a little typo, um, silver shrines in Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. We're talking about economics here. Demetrius, he, he's a craftsman. He makes temple trinkets a picture of the temple of Artemis on one side and the other side, the goddess Artemis, and he made a really good living from it. This was his livelihood. And he was part of what they, what they would say it would be a guild, like a craftsman's guild or a, a union, and he pulls all these people in there in the same industry as him, and he says, listen, our industry, our livelihood is under attack. Artemis had been profitable for him, profitable for the guild, profitable for Ephesus as a whole. The temple Artemis was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. It took a couple hundred years to build, and people would come in from all over the world to behold it. It was also a bank because it was so secure and grand. And this is what they built their identity upon. Here's Demetrius's message. These Christians are messing with our money. Paul said in 1 Timothy that the love of money is the root of all types of evil. Jesus said that, that money wants to be served, and if you serve money, that you can't serve God because you can't have two masters. This is the power of money. Jesus called it mammon. And you can do a lot of things in society, but trust me, as you begin to rush um, and infringe upon economic 
lines, national lines, and religious lines, there will be pushback. We've seen this over the last four years, people. No matter what side or what news channel you watch. I often find myself in places um, where people watch money on TV all day. There's literally a channel that, just, that has numbers that go down all day, and it's, it's all about like money, and they're tracking their money, and they make political decisions based on who will protect and keep that money increasing. And whatever, whoever they deem um, negatively affects that bottom line is the enemy. And on top of messing with Demetrius's potential earnings, he says this will affect the livelihood of the whole city of Ephesus. Demetrius claimed that this assault against their livelihood is also rooted in the utter disrespect of Artemis. Commentators say that Ephesians were fiercely loyal to their patron goddess. There is often a thin line between economics and religious fervor. We often associate financial prosperity, regardless of how we got it or what we have to do to keep it, with God's glory. Verse 27, there is a danger not only to our trade, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. You see, our financial loss is tied to Artemis' popularity. This is how the world will view us. She will be robbed of her majesty if we are not doing well. If this Christian message continues to spread, it will be to the detriment to our God. You guys still with me? Okay, all right. Listen, religious fervor isn't confined to just being in the church. One commentator says this. All these, com all these, all these quotes are also on the website, just if you're trying to write fast. Um, at the very center of each culture is a religion, whether sacred or secular, expressed in a set of myths of origin, power, and destiny. These, in turn, spawn the culture's worldview, which generates social structures and behavioral patterns. Paul's message here shakes Ephesian, indeed Greco-Roman culture, to its very core by showing one of its own religious power centers, the Artemis cult, for what it is, nothing. In that sense, it does not mean the death of the culture as it does for any culture today with its gods, whether they be traditional pantheon of tribal deities or the media and education icons of secular humanism. Listen, I know we don't live in a first century world, but we do have images and idols and icons that represent our cities, that represent our industries that many worship every day. See, Demetrius is not only appealing to their economic concerns, he's stirring up their religious fervor. He basically says it's under attack, it's being threatened. And Demetrius needs to make sure that his contemporaries can see and recognize who's the threat, who's the real problem. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Artemis, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Not only is the way 
affecting their economic prosperity, infringing on their religious fervor, but it's a threat to their national pride. Look at the phrase, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. That is a nationalistic phrase right there. They are shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. If the temple is discredited, which they have built their world upon and around, this is what makes them who they are. If it's discredited or robbed, what will become of them? One commentator says, says this, Demetrius is also shrewd. He makes the connection for his listeners between their economic well-being and the prevailing religious ideology. This gospel threatens our trade and our temple. Demetrius has evoked a powerful mix and a winning strategy for fostering hatred and mindless violence. If you don't believe me, read verse 29. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. People, the people seize Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rush into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Threats on people's way of life will be met with opposition. Threats on the kingdoms of this world will be met with opposition. Listen, this culture, if Artemis is at all threatened, people will be, are condemned to death. That, that is historically written that, that when you come against their God, when you come against the things of the, that the culture says is the closest to their identity, it's met with hostility and death. So they have the whole city stirred up. They run into the theater. This is, they've made this public. This is the center of the city. It fits, it fits 25,000 people. They're making a public spectacle of Paul and the disciples and the way of Jesus. Verse 20, 32 says this, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So you have this scene in this theater, this mob, and they're, they're tense, and it's ramping up, and the Jewish community is looking to distance themselves from Paul and the followers of Jesus, and they send Alexander in to address the crowd, and they drown him out when they recognize that he's a Jew, that he's not one of them. Willie Jennings says this, if you want people to hate deeply, hate down to the bone, then suggest that someone or something threatens their financial stability and their theological beliefs. If you want people to be willing to kill without hesitation, suggest that these same enemies will weaken the social and political standings of a place and a people by their disrupting actions. They, they shouted for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I, play, I played football, and I would call that a hostile environment. You came into our home, our home stadium, right? I don't know if you watch English soccer. I mean, like, there comes a point where the chance are more than just about a friendly game between two teams. 
the, the chants, and as the crowd begins to roar and rev up, like this is much more than just the game. It's meant to intimidate. It's meant to express dominance and superiority against anything that threatens them. This is what's happening here. When they're chanting their name, when they're chanting Artemis the Great, when they're chanting national pride and being Ephesians, they're saying to the detriment of anyone else who's not like us. N.T. Wright says this, Artemis was indeed great. She was the most powerful divinity in the place and had been for a long time. In the distant past, the meteorite had smashed into the surface of the earth somewhere near Ephesus, and the local people had regarded it as a gift from heaven, a statue, though presumably not like-like, of the goddess herself. Artemis crashes into their world, and this is a sign for them from heaven, and they've built their whole life around the goddess Artemis. She's the god of fate, the god of hunting, the god of fertility, and she makes the people of Ephesus powerful, wealthy, and influential. You might say this, is, this was an archaic culture. This was a time period. We're way more sophisticated and progressive nowadays to worship idols or a patron goddess. John Tyson, author and pastor, says this. When something takes the place of God, our loves get distorted. Sometimes that thing is money and financial success. Maybe it's our intelligence, sexuality, power, or, or even the fear of people. There's almost an endless list of things that can function as a god, a heart idol. Heart idols are those things we put before God in our values, affections, and minds. Listen, when these people in Ephesus began to declare Jesus as Lord, what they did was they put all their heart idols on notice and says, you're no longer in power here. They took all the cultural idols of the day that had a hold over their lives and says, you no longer have a hold over my life. They emptied them of their power and their rule over their lives. Being a follower of the way of Jesus has implications on your life and has implications on how you interact in the world around you. Because to follow the way of Jesus will undermine the gods of the day, will undermine the idols of the day, and the things that our culture says, this is the way, and our way will say, no, it's not. Where people in our world will say, that's God, that's worthy to be worshipped. We say, no, it's not. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. Jesus holds all power. Jesus turned over the tables of economic injustice and the week of his passion. You know what happened to him. And now the tables of economic prosperity are being threatened in Ephesus. And the message and activity of the Spirit in Paul's life and the disciples' lives are creating a new way. And they are experiencing major pushback. People are literally turning their lives around and away from idols and worship. And they're turning their hearts towards the kingdom of God, and this has the whole city in an uproar. And you second-guess posting that Bible verse. I'm just joking. <laughs> just joking. I break it up. You guys are getting looking really serious right now. Um, We think sometimes, I'm almost done, that following the way of Jesus is only about being soft 
and gentle, and it's a Hallmark card, and, it's, and nothing bad ever happens. Listen, following Jesus is disrupting and upsetting. Jesus told us to count the cost. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. Like, that's a, like a, that's a, a death torture machine. Carry your cross and follow me. He, he wasn't promising ice cream and roses. I don't know why I said that. Anyways, <laughs> he's just, he's, but he's saying, like, you have to lay down your life to follow me. This, like, the, like, the way of Jesus is not an elective. It's not just something that's, I'll do it when it's convenient. I'll, I'll follow that thing about Jesus, but not that and not that. These people, at the risk of losing their lives, gave their whole life to following the way of Jesus. As a minority in this country, in this climate, in this culture, they said, we will follow the way of Jesus. Church, we have a prophetic calling on our lives that's supposed to point our world to the true and living God that speaks the heart and the mind of God. It says that's not, that God's not okay with that worship. God's not okay with that injustice. God's not okay with that life because this is who he is. Do you preach a gospel that's a threat to the system in the way of the world? Do you live a gospel that's a threat to the economic and cultural and nationalistic ways of our world? Do you have a gospel that disrupts your life and your livelihood? Do you allow the gospel to disrupt your wealth or your vocation or your success? I know I'm, I know I'm stepping on toes right now. I don't, I'm just... I just want to say, like, if we're going to follow him, man, he's, call, he's calling us to follow him with our life, with our whole life. We, we like to separate things and go, I don't, in my church world, I don't talk about money. Man, that's the thing that Jesus talked most about. What you do with your money, that's where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. I, I can tell you what you worship by where you spend your money and where you spend your time. The truth is, truth is the way to freedom, but truth is convicting and a confrontational force. And we want to be truth tellers and we want to live by the truth, but we have to let the truth have its way in us first. And as we let the truth have its way in us first and we live it out, we will be confronted in the world. Because it can be scary to have your whole world undone. And this is what the gospel message does. This is everything in your life you've been working for to build your own throne, your own culture, to be your own God. And God is saying, I'm God. Surrender everything to me and you will find life. The beginning of Acts, Peter's first message, he told them that they murdered Jesus. That was a hard truth. It says that they were cut to the heart. And when they were cut to the heart, they said, what shall we do? He said, repent. Change directions. There's a direction that you are trying to go in your life to become God. And God is saying the only way to find life is to follow him, is to let down everything that you've been holding on to for security, for comfort. I need you to let that go and follow me. It's about worship. Are you worshiping protection? 
Are you worshiping comfort? Are you worshiping elitism? Are you worshiping your education? Are you worshiping money? God is saying, I want that place in your heart. This is the message the disciples are bringing to the world, that God is actually worthy of worship. God is worthy of our affections because God took the thing that was most valuable to him, his son, and he gave him, gave his life that we might have life. And so what he calls us to do is to bring the thing that's most valuable, your time, your heart, your resources, and that's the act of worship. So this great disturbance about the way is that people were letting God disrupt their lives. What does worship look like for you? The implications of the gospel and being a follower of Jesus is not, is not just heaven after life, but a radical change to bring heaven to earth. Church, following Jesus is disruptive. Church, we have a, we have a world that needs the good news of Jesus Christ. We need a church They'll live by the conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord, not when it's convenient, not when it's to our advantage, to when it's not convenient, when it's not to our advantage. And so this is just, I, I just threw in my notes, I have too many quotes. <laughs> just heart to heart, I, just, I want us to be a people that follow him, even if it costs us. And let's give him our lives, and that's what worship is. So let's be a community that worships God with our whole lives in spirit and in truth. Amen? Amen. Father, um, we give you glory. Man, God, you are worthy of all praise. You're worthy of all honor and glory and power. You hold everything together. And you are God who wants to reveal yourself to us, who is revealing yourself to us, who wants to work through us so that the whole world may know Jesus. And so, Jesus, we submit our ways. We submit our right to be right. We submit our preferences and our ideas and our ideals to the way of Jesus. And we ask that you would form us, shape us, and give us the courage to follow you and to turn away from anything that keeps us from you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.